It's the UEFA Champions League on Paramount Plus. Europe's top club soccer tournament. Champions versus champions. The best teams facing off in the knockout rounds. Magnificent! And it all takes place. While you're filling out financial reports at work. In the middle of your day, in the middle of your week. So use that second screen. Call in sick. Do whatever you gotta do to tune in Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Nobody watches the UEFA Champions League like us. Stream every match live exclusively on Paramount Plus. New CBS Sunday. You collect rewards, right? This is how I make my living. When something is lost, everyone's looking for something. He finds it. You strong swimmer? So-so. So-so. So-so's okay. Justin Hartley stars. I survive. You make quick, smart decisions and you never let panic take the wheel. Sounds cool. It is cool, actually. Very cool. Tracker. New Sunday on CBS and streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Welcome in to another edition of Next Level Inside Carolina's YouTube show where Greg Barnes and myself, Tommy Ashley, go into a little bit deeper depth on issues and things involving Carolina sports today. And it's fitting because it's baseball season and it is the heart towards the end of college baseball season. The North Carolina Diamond Hills will be the topic of discussion with Mr. Pat James. And I have sat in the press box for the better part of three months watching this team. Pat, how you doing? Great, happy to be here. This should be uh, this should be fun, Greg. And I know you're you're a true diehard baseball person, Greg. That's what I that's what I hear when you're not on the golf course. This is true. <laughs> so we will get right into this, Pat. I'm going to jump in feet first. RPI rankings. A lot of people do not understand them, uh, myself included. Uh, totally. But at this point, as we record this today on May the 5th, North Carolina is 34th in the D1 baseball RPI rankings. Tell us what that means exactly. Yeah. I mean, so really, I mean, just kind of generally in comparison to, you know, other sports as well, um, RPI is really just looking at, you know, the ranks based on teams, you know, wins and losses against strength of schedule. Um, and when it comes into baseball, it is the primary metric that the committee generally relies upon, you know, when it comes to selection Monday, um, we've seen, you know, there's other metrics that they'll tend to use here and there, but if you're looking for the most one that is most commonly used when it comes to these seating scenarios, um, certainly RPI is the one that comes into play the most. Um, and when you look at UNC, obviously, you know, like you said, number 34 in the RPI now that is up 13 spots, um, since they got swept in that Boston college series, just over a little bit, two weeks ago or so now. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, the big thing you look at with the RPI with UNC, um, whereas, yes, UNC, you know, it's in pretty good position right now sitting there in that 34 spot, um, but it's UNC's record against its upper tier opponents. That's maybe the one thing that you're looking at the closest right now. Um, UNC is 9-15 and 15 against teams in the RPI top 50, 15-16 and 16 against teams through uh, 1 through 100. Um, and right now, you know, as we're standing, UNC would be in the postseason with that current mark. 
um, but certainly need to build upon that a little bit more uh, over these next two weeks to feel further solidified into that spot. Do you think this is a true bubble team, Pat? I think at this point, um, I would say that UNC is closer to safe than on the bubble. Um, I think that this past weekend, you know, going to Virginia Tech was massive. I mean, I think my opinion going into that series was that the winner of that series is sitting pretty comfortable and the loser is very well likely going to miss the NCAA tournament. Um, and you look at Virginia Tech right now, they're outside of D1 baseball's projected field. Um, you know, they have a big loss against Radford, who I think is like 292 in the RPI. That's really kind of weighing them down a little bit. Um, another thing is, too, is when you look at UNC back to 11 and 11 overall in ACC play. Um, you would have to think that if UNC is able to finish exactly 500 in ACC play, um, they're most likely getting in. You know, they'd be going three and three against NC State and Clemson over these next two weeks. Um, and I would have to think that four and two or, or better, obviously, um, is almost a certainty to get them in at this point. When you look at the uh, Boyd's World needs report, which kind of mm-hmm. uh, forecast out, you know, what does a team need to do to reach certain benchmarks and RPI? Uh, and what they have with Carolina having – Eight games left. Need five wins to be top 32. Seven wins out of those eight to get into the top 16. Uh, I bring that up because with North Carolina on the positive side of the bubble right now, do they have any chance of hosting if they go on a strong close, do you think? I I think it's certainly within the realm of possibilities. I'm glad you asked that because I feel like that's not a conversation that a lot of people are really having right now. And it's funny to have that conversation now when you think back to last year as well, where, you know, exam break, we we weren't thinking about the possibility of UNC hosting at all. But, you know, you look at this remaining schedule, um, seven of the last eight regular season games are against teams in the top 26 of the RPI. Um, That's Coastal Carolina, Clemson, and NC State. Um, Four of those are also on the road, um, which I think is also obviously going to help a little bit. Um, and you look at UNC, another one of the metrics in its favor is that it is nine and four in away games this year, uh, including seven and three in ACC road games. Um, so I think that would be helpful for them going forward too. You look at, you know, the only team that's not in that, you know, top 26 mix is Gardner Webb, you know, next two weeks from now, two Tuesdays from now. They're number 148 in the RPI. But they're also 27 and 16. So if you were to say lose to them, you know, it's not going to hurt you too bad. And, you know, when they're obviously you're not going to get dinged by that either, as you've seen with some of these other teams like Campbell, for example, who's in an extremely weak conference that's kind of getting banged up even with some of its wins over its opponents. Um, But, you know, you look at it and I think something else that's also interesting about UNC when you look at, you know, those remaining games is, you know, as we're sitting here today, UNC would be the number eight seed in the ACC tournament. I still think it's a little too far to be kind of projecting what, what that's going to be looking at like right now, considering how, you know, the middle of the standings are looking. But as the number eight seed in the ACC tournament, UNC would be matched up Wake Forest and NC State at this point. Um, Wake Forest is obviously number one in the RPI, in my opinion, is the best team in the country. Um, and there are is a scenario, obviously, where you could maybe – pick up a win against them theoretically, Um, which, you know, if we're projecting still uh, would obviously go a long way towards helping UNC's uh, hosting chances. You know, it's an interesting discussion. You talked about Campbell and of course, Campbell beat Carolina um, six to five last week. 
and did so, well, I guess this week, technically, and, and did so on the back of two hit-by-pitches late, of which is, that's a rough way to lose a ball game. But their schedule hurts them. Carolina is what they have ahead of them certainly helps. You mentioned the 500 thing. That's certainly attainable. Um, Pat, when I look at this, we talked about it in the, in the box the other day. That Seton Hall loss way back on the first day of the season, how much does that affect your, y'all's rankings or the RPI rankings in Carolina's situation here? We mentioned, uh, we've talked about not, not sweeping series that they should have. How much do those games way back, Seton Hall, Georgia Tech, Notre Dame, are they affecting Carolina now, or do these next two weeks sort of erase all that, depending on how they do? I think it's definitely a little bit more of the latter. Um, I think the Seton Hall series, I mean, obviously that's UNC's lowest ranked uh, RPI loss. You know, I think Seton Hall, I'm trying to find it right now. I think they're around 172 or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously a weaker conference there in the Big East when it comes to baseball. Um, so definitely like not a great look. I, but I think in my opinion, it's those two that you mentioned. They are not completing those sweeps on the road at Notre Dame and Georgia Tech. Um, those certainly in the moment to me felt like big time missed opportunities. Um, obviously you're looking at it where, you know, you're trying to finish off a sweep as the part of the second game of double header in both of those situations on the road. Um, and so I can understand maybe the idea of, you know, you know, again, these are college kids, you know, you got the series win already, maybe kind of taking your foot off the gas a little bit, but in the moment, both of those losses were ones to me that felt like could end up you know, coming into play for UNC in terms of its postseason resume down the stretch. And uh, if I were to look at any result at this point, it'd be really those two. Yeah, it's an interesting dynamic you pointed out there. You get the series win, and then you got to play another game. And quite frankly, in both of those games, Carolina looked like they were ready to hop on the bus and get back to Chapel Hill, um, especially given the weather and all that crazy stuff that's been going on this season. We're talking to Pat James, D1 Baseball about North Carolina's tournament chances and all. Pat, what did the Virginia Tech Saturday show you about this North Carolina team? Obviously, Matt Corvath loaded them up on his back and probably had the best, one of the best baseball days I've ever seen and certainly one of the best weeks of the season for anybody in the country. But what did you learn about this team up there in Blacksburg that maybe we hadn't learned all year? Yeah, I think it's a good question because, you know, I think you go back to that Boston College series, that Sunday of the finale, you know, we're sitting there post game, And I think the big thing that stood out to me at that point is, you know, it's, it's crunch time at that point. You know, it's like, how's this team going to respond? And just over the course of this season, I've been kind of curious, you know, about the general uh, pulse, the general leadership from it. You know, Matt Horvath is a guy who, you know, Coach Forbes has touted as kind of the heartbeat and the soul of this team. Um, and he's a guy who, for as much as productive as he's been, um, for as much as he's done over the course of his career, has always been kind of more of a lead by example guy, in my opinion. I never really projected him to be, you know, sort of fiery force or anything like that. Um, and I was really curious where that sort of presence was going to come from. You know, it really hadn't revealed itself over the course of the season up until that point, in my opinion. But as we came to find out, you know, going back and watching the broadcast from that Sunday game, um, that's when, you know, Mac obviously called that players only meeting and really sat down with the guys and kind of, you know, addressed that, like, you know, the fact that some brought to his attention, you know, 
maybe guys aren't taking these losses as seriously as they should. Maybe people should be more invested in winning. Um, and just having kind of real conversations about that. And, you know, we talked to Mac there after that UNCW game last Tuesday. And I, I thought the way that he spoke about that, honestly, in a lot of ways, sounded a lot like some of the best leaders who I've heard you know, come through this program, especially here in recent years. I'm um, talking about guys like Angel Zarate, Dallas Tesser, um, Michael Bush. And I thought that you really kind of saw over the course of last week, you know, kind of some of that leadership come through, um, you know, Mac, obviously with his play, but I thought just kind of the vocal aspect for him, uh, Tomas Frick as well, you know, you saw him come up in some big spots as well. Um, I think those two guys are the two who you're really looking towards at that point, you know, for that leadership. Um, so I thought for that to kind of come through just over the course of the entire week was massive. And I thought, you know, maybe the other thing that was really big for me in the Virginia Tech series specifically was, you know, over the course of this season, you know, Coach Ford just talked about the idea of, you know, having a knockout punch a little bit and maybe at times that being lacking. And, you know, and that's something that I've talked about as well, you know, kind of that idea of a killer instinct. Um, it's been missing at times, I feel like, in different situations. But I thought that it was extremely apparent there in the second game of that doubleheader. You know, you go into the eighth inning of that one, you know, UNC was cruising there for most of that game um, after piling some runs there early. Um, but eighth inning, you know, Virginia Tech's able to work into a situation where they have the tying run at the plate against Matt Poston. He comes in, gets the two strikeouts, and then you go in the top of the ninth, first three guys walk and eventually come around to score. Um, and the last of those is Jackson Vanderbrick scoring on a wild pitch in which, you know, he dives head first into home plate, you know, takes the catcher's mitt to the face. Um, and I thought just that effort there, I mean, I, I was saying the other day, like, you know, if I'm the coaching staff, that play right there, like I'm showing that over and over again and being like, you know, this is what it's going to take, you know, to make a run or these sort of plays right here. And so I thought to kind of see that come through a little bit was pretty encouraging for that group. Pat, when I, when I look at this team, um, you know, we, we all kind of do the comparison thing, right? Where we think about uh, what the program has been, what, what the standard has been. Um, and when I look at where this team is, you know, on the, on the plus side of the, the bubble right now, in, in pretty good shape to make the NCAA tournament, I think, you know, Carolina fans should feel pretty good given kind of how this, this team is, is made up. I mean, um, the, the hitting success doesn't surprise me. We've seen a lot of Carolina teams, you know, dating back to the early Mike Fox era, have a lot of success at the plate. But what has really defined this program over the last 25 years is elite pitching. Um, you know, I just pulled up <laughs> – this is wild. Go back to 2017, right? I had a great year that year. When you look at the, the starting pitchers, J.B. Vakakis had a 2.53 ERA. Tyler Baum, 2.57. Luca Delatri, 3.34. And he was kind of the weak link of that, of that unit. And then you look at this group. Um, I mean, it, it's crazy. Connor is over five. Jake's over six. Carlson's 8.9. Uh, and those are your starters. So for North Carolina to be in the position they're in with the starting pitching, and that's not even to talk about the bullpen, struggling the way that it has, um, I'm just amazed. And I would like your your kind of opinion on, did you think the pitching staff had the potential to struggle to this extent, or has this been a surprise for you as well? 
Yeah, it, it's certainly been a surprise. I mean, you go back to last year. I mean, it's kind of wild how it's been kind of the same story to some extent where, I mean, the pitching really kind of hampered UNC for much of last year, especially there in that, you know, rough April where UNC lost five straight you know, ACC series. First time that ever happened in program history. Um, but, you know, for me and, you know, and Coach Forbes talked about it over this, that stretch last season where it's like, yeah, like we're making efforts to try to, you know, fix this, like, you know, going out, you know, trying to bring in some more guys, you know, recruiting wise, you know, not just through, you know, high school ranks, but obviously the portal as well. Um, and you saw UNC do that a little bit, you know, Kevin Acey's come in, obviously has emerged as, you know, probably one of, if not the most reliable arm on this staff, along with Matt Poston, you know, coming from the JUCO ranks as well. Um, but I mean, really, you know, coming out of the summer, I mean, I truly felt, you know, and the coaching staff has talked about this a lot too, but that this was going to be the deepest pitching staff that, you know, I've covered at UNC in a couple of years, honestly. Um, I mean, there's a lot to like about the staff personally. I mean, you just look at some of the stuff and I still, I still feel that in terms of just pure stuff, um, this is the best pitching staff that UNC has had a couple of years, but it's just, it has not been consistent. Um, by any means. <laughs> uh, and I, I think that maybe there hasn't been quite as much swing and miss with this group um, for what their stuff is, um, for whatever reason that is. And, you know, I think a lot of that is, you know, there's been a lot of situations where UNC has been able to get into two strike counts and just haven't been able to put guys away. I, I think that's kind of hurt them on the pitching side a little bit. Um, but I mean, you look at a guy, I mean, you know, I know Connor Bover, you know, you look at his numbers, they don't exactly scream ace. Um, but I think Coach Forbes talked about it a couple of weeks ago where you, you look at this team and of all the players on it, I mean, he's probably made the biggest leap of everybody. I mean, you go back to last year, I mean, a really up and down year for him from the moment he got on campus um, where, I mean, in the offseason coming from Siena, I mean, he got knocked around pretty good. You know, I saw most of those outings in that fall and preseason of that year, came in last year in the spring, struggled, I mean, started in the bullpen, you know, found some success there in the bullpen, they move in the rotation again, you know, kind of hits the ground running with that, but then slowly, you know, again, in that April came around and everybody was struggling. He was certainly right there in the middle of it. Um, they moved him back to the bullpen though. And you kind of saw him, you know, change his mindset a lot. You know, you don't, they talk about that idea of like, you know, being a starter or a lever, you don't want to think too much differently. Um, but I appreciate appreciate about Connor is that he is pretty honest, you know, about his struggles and what he's gone through. And over the course of this season, this season, he's really talked about how much that helped him where, you know, instead of kind of being timid and kind of, you know, biting around the strike zone a little bit, just kind of nibbling around it, you know, he's really come at guys this year, you know, that shows up. Um, he has a first pitch strike percentage uh, that's up 11.9% to 67, 67.5% overall. That's second in the ACC. Um, and subsequently, you've seen his walk rate, you know, be cut almost in half. Um, that's been massive for him. It's allowed to go, allow him to go deeper into games. I mean, you saw it there. You know, he moves into the Friday night role last week. Um, and although, you know, gives up five runs, the fact that he went seven innings in that one and really kind of grinded it out. I mean, that's what UNC reads, needs right now more than anything. And I think that if UNC can continue to get that sort of length from him there in the Friday spot, um, that it could potentially allow this, you know, UNC pitching staff to maybe kind of reach its potential a little bit more where you're not, you're not running out, you know, the same bullpen guys, you know, three times maybe in a single weekend. Yeah, uh, that's a great point about getting linked. Forbes has talked about that all year. And, you know, 
when I guess it was Carlson against Boston College, Forbes was hot about Carlson not going deep enough on Friday and basically saying, and it's, and it's accurate, that it, it screwed the bullpen up all weekend. And it resulted in some guys um, either pitching tired or um, not being able to pitch because they had pitched too much to make up for that. But something happened um, with Beauvais there. And going seven, even in a loss, makes it avail- makes guys available. I want to ask you, I remember, I can't remember exactly when I said it to Forbes, one of those post games. I said, at some point, you're going to have to win a game 3-2. Well, Carolina was able to beat East Carolina, who I think is a pretty good baseball team, 2-1 with those three pitchers uh, that we've talked about. And that seems like the ideal setup for Carolina in a must-win type game, which I think East Carolina was. Going forward, Beauvais is going to be your Friday. Are we set on Knapp and Pence being the weekend starters, or is there some more wiggle there? Obviously, you got two more series um, with Clemson and NC State, but then you also have the ACC tournament, and that's where a guy's really shown uh, last season. Yeah, I mean, Dalton Pence has been a guy who, you know, you go back to last summer, I mean, you know, coming off Tommy John surgery, you know, missed all of his true freshman season, you know, dominated the Coastal Plain League last year. I mean, again, you know, Coastal Plain League, it's certainly not the Cape, um, but it is a good league, a good quality league. And, you know, I made it out there to see him once, over the summer and he just came off across super impressive. I mean, the fastball is one of the best pitches on this team just has a ton of life to it, you know, plays up in the zone really well just because of the spin rate on it. Um, and the changeup also, I think is a good pitch um, that he's able to build off and, you know, he's worked on, you know, the cutter this year, you know, that was a thing where early in the year when UNC came into the season, expecting him to be their closer um, and he struggled there a little bit out of the gate. You know, teams were just squaring off that fastball a little bit too much because he was relying on it so much. But, you know, he's added that cutter there in about mid-March. And I think that you've seen the results kind of, you know, transpire with that. You know, those two things have really intersected uh, and allowed him to find success. You know, obviously he's a lefty as well. And, you know, if Coach Forbes could draw it up perfectly, it'd be right, left, right. Um, So I think in an ideal scenario, you're able to keep him there on Saturday. You know, he made that first weekend start of his career last weekend at, at Virginia Tech. And, you know, I mean, only goes three innings while throwing 80 pitches. You're not great. But I, I thought, you know, he really showed some metal there. You know, he allows the first three batters he faces um, to reach and eventually score, but held the last 11 he faced hitless, um, finished his career high five strikeouts. And, you know, I think even the bigger performance that really stood out to me um, was that four inning start that he had against South Carolina there in Charlotte. I mean, South Carolina is one of the maybe the top three lineups in the country. You know, and you can honestly argue they might be the best right now, um, even though they're pretty banged up. Um, but I thought that was pretty resp- um, pretty impressive. And so I think, you know, all things considered, I, I would see him sticking there in one of those spots. I, I think Jake Knapp as well. I mean, it, it's kind of tough because, like, I, I feel like his overall results, honestly, don't quite match how I feel like he's been looking here as of late. Um, I think the fastball, I mean, fastball is, you know, mid nineties. I mean, he's one of the hardest throwers on this team, second behind Ben Peterson, I believe, um, in terms of average velocity, I I think at times, you know, he kind of loses that fastball a little bit. It just has so much run on it, um, that he can kind of, you know, run into some damage there. And you saw last week in that Virginia tech series where the other thing that was kind of hurting him there early was just off speed stuff. Just, you know, wasn't throwing it close enough to the plate to kind of get any of those Virginia Tech guys to swing at it, you know, bounced a few in there and things like that. But 
there's some stuff to like about him. You know, he's the one who maybe I'm most questionable about. But I mean, I think obviously, you know, for UNC, for UNC to reach its true potential, it, it really comes down to Max Carlson and what he's able to do and what role that's in. I mean, you saw there on Tuesday, um, Wednesday, like you said, I mean, be able to go in there and finish that one out, three innings, no hits, one walk, two strikeouts. I still, while I was watching it, you know, Tomas Frick and Scott Forbes talked about the idea of wanting to get him in the bullpen, and, you know, see him, you know, come out with his hair on fire a little bit. In the first two innings of that, I, I don't know if I was still quite seeing that personally, even though, you know, he was having some success, um, fell behind against some guys as well. Um, but he came on strong there in that last, last inning and really finished that one off. And I mean, who knows? I mean, maybe that's kind of the key for him going forward. It's kind of interesting because I was doing some digging on, you know, his advanced numbers last night. Um, according to 643 charts. And there's a lot of similarities in terms of, you know, some of his advanced stats compared to last year and this year, honestly. His walk rate, his strikeout rate, his expected FIP, his Sierra, you know, all those numbers are within 0.2 points of each other. Like, it's almost identical. It's kind of crazy. But the big thing for him has been, you know, the home run is just, is, he's been snake bitten by all season. Um, he's allowed 12 home runs in 54 innings this year. He allowed 13 in 106 innings over the first two years of his career. Um, so it's kind of insane just the rate that's been at. His home run to fly ball ratio, it's up almost 8% compared to last year, 18.8%, um, which is the fifth highest mark in the ACC. And so it's one of those things where, you know, and he's still like, it's not like he's allowing fly balls at a much higher rate either. So it's one of those things where, you know, who knows at this point, but there could be some bad luck there. You know, maybe that's something that if he can eliminate that a little bit, you know, he finds himself back in the rotation here in a couple of weeks. It's the NFL offseason, but on pick six, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, the football season never stops. Host Will Brinson, John Breach, and Tyler Sullivan are joined by analysts like Brady Quinn, Leslie Ducible, Katie Mox, and R.J. White to keep you in the loop on everything happening around the league. Whether it's free agents signing with new teams, the all-important NFL draft, or schedule release day, pick six has you covered. As the face of the league changes with every team move and player pickup this spring, Pick 6 is a must-listen. Download and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Odyssey app, and anywhere podcasts are found. CBS Wednesday. We have so many cool, diverse people from different backgrounds, different beliefs, different upbringings, and it just keeps growing. Citizen of the United States. I'm a hustler. I'm a big Taylor Swift fan. I'm the queen of the tribe. I am playing whatever role I gotta play. I'm gonna play this game for speed. I ain't going down like no punk. A new Survivor Wednesday on CBS and streaming on Paramount Plus. Pat, you started down the path I would like to go now. Let's let's do some kind of projecting out, some hypotheticals, if you will. Uh, you mentioned D1 baseball. They've got. Uh, Carolina currently projected as the three seed in Conway, which would be a just a, a fun um, Carolina <laughs> clash with with Coastal as the host and ECU as the two seed. Um, let, let's say let's say that happens, right? Let, let's say that Carolina is, is easily into the postseason, but they're not hosting. Um, for this team, given what you know about it thus far, I know you just mentioned Carlson. For this team to make a legitimate run at Supers and even potentially at Omaha, in a best-case scenario type deal, 
what needs to happen? What should fans be looking for for this team to potentially reach that potential? Yeah, I, I definitely think it be, it starts and ends with the pitching staff there, like we kind of talked about, especially you know getting that length in that Friday spot or you know your game one spot, however you want to frame it. Um, I think that's the most important factor for UNC going forward. Um, I, I think at this point, you know, you're really hoping still that maybe one more arm can emerge back there in the pen. You know, you have guys like a, a Nick Pry and Will Sandy, who I know, I mean, they've both been really inconsistent this year. I've really been pretty inconsistent for most of their careers, but have also proven to you that they can come through in big time spots. It's not like they haven't had any success whatsoever. Um, and, you know, you saw Nick Pry come in there in that Tuesday game, you know, was able to get two outs there in a really big spot. I mean, I know the run scores against them there. Um, kind of late. Um, but I, I thought, you know, maybe that's something you can kind of build upon a little bit if you're really hoping. Um, and I think Ben Peterson is also really coming on. I mean, I, I've been saying all year that, I mean, he probably has the most electric stuff on this pitching staff. Um, that splitter and slider, you know, according to UNC's analytics stuff plus model are two of the three best pitches on the team. He's now throwing that two seamer in there a little bit more and the stuff looks really, really good. I mean, I've gone behind the play and watched him you know, two of his last three outings since he came back into the mix against UNCW, and it looks really good. Um, so I think if you're a UNC fan, you really have to be encouraged by that. Um, and, you know, you go to the other side of the ball, um, to the offense. And, you know, as good as this team has been offensively, it's kind of crazy to think that, you know, we're sitting here, you know, middle of May, and it, it still feels like there's still another level to it, honestly. Um, and a big part of that is, you know, my big thing coming off of last year was you know, you're bringing back a very experienced group. And, you know, my in, in my mind, I envision the next step for it be to become one where you take, you know, all that slugging, that home run power from last year. And then now you have a more disciplined team at the plate as well. Um, and you've definitely seen that this year. You know, UNC's OBP is up 23 points to 0.406, which is 38th nationally. Um, you know, they're eighth nationally and second in the ACC with 272 walks. And, you know, a big part of that has been Matt Horvath and Vance Honeycutt, you know, really cutting down on some of the strikeouts. You know, Vance, I mean, Vance is tied for second nationally with Dylan Cruz in walks. I mean, what he's been doing at the play, I, you know, it's kind of an underrated storyline. I mean, I know it hasn't been quite as loud the season he's had this year, especially compared to the expectations for him. Um, but I think what he's been able to do in terms of getting on base and setting up Mac has been massive. Um, but at the same time, you know, UNC scoring average, it's up about full point from last year, full run. But the one thing that has been kind of hurting a little bit is it's two outs and running and scoring runners in scoring position. Um, you look actually UNC is doing better overall with runners in scoring position this season. I'm quite impressively. I mean, last year, 799 OPS with runners in scoring position. This year it's 955. It's almost up 160 points. Um, but it's quite interesting. You look two outs, runners in scoring position, UNC slash 274, 390, 441 last year. This year, 237, 366, 433. So average down about 40 points. Uh, OBP down about 24, sl uh, slugging down, you know, just about 10 or so. So I think it's kind of interesting that, you know, that hasn't also at least stayed the same when your overall numbers are better. Um, and the one guy who really sticks out when you look at those numbers is Alberto Osuna. 
Um, Alberto obviously had a massive year last year coming in from Walter State, comes in this year, and based off everything that I heard in the offseason, looked the best he ever had. I mean, I, I know, I know that's a phrase that's thrown around with everybody in the offseason, but even talking to some of the analytics guys and things like that, they're like, man, like he was unbelievable in the preseason up until he suffered that handmade injury. Um, and I think that that's really kind of nagged at him probably more than anyone would want to let on, especially him. And so I think maybe, you know, having this week off here, these five days, and maybe that's the key for him. You go back and going back, kind of tying this together, you know, Alberto last year with two outs and runners in scoring position, he hit 353, 500, 794, um, and led the team with five home runs and 24 RBIs in those situations. This year, he's hitting 211, 375, 526 with two home runs and seven RBIs. So, I mean, so hitting about 140 points worse uh, in those situations. And so, I think if you could maybe kind of see him reemerge into the, you know, the slugger that he's proven he is, uh, I think that will take this UNC lineup to a whole nother level. It's interesting, yeah. Uh, I mean, what were we talking about in the box? It, they were 0 for 19 or 0 for 20 with bases <laughs> loaded there in, in a stretch. Right. So those type numbers get people's eyes, and then you start thinking, well, they're not doing it, they're not doing it, but the numbers aren't that far off. Let me ask you a last question before we close out here. Um, let's talk about Casey Cook and Jackson Vanderbrake. I, I think those guys, Casey's reached, what, 35 times straight or something I like that? So, yeah. And Vanderbrake has just been fantastic as well. Just speak to what you've seen from them. Tomas Frick, Matt Corvath, obviously, um, I love Frick's leadership. I love what he did at Virginia Tech for this team. Carolina needs somebody like that, a fiery guy. Horvath's numbers speak for themselves, and you mentioned Vance. Um, but Cook and Vanderbrake, I think, have been um, pretty special for Forbes' team. And, and Casey Cook and ACC plays batting over 400. Just wrap us up talking about those two guys. Yeah, I mean, they've been massive. I think another guy to throw in there also is Hunter Stokely. I mean, Hunter Stokely, I mean, he leads this team in, in batting average in 338, 983 OPS. And I think even more importantly, his defensive first base uh, is really, really strong. I mean, for a big guy, you know, who's obviously also cut down his weight pretty significantly from last year, he's pretty nimble over there. Um, and Coach Forbes told him last year that, you know, you could be a gold glove caliber defensive first baseman. I think, you know, again, that's a that's high praise there, but he's certainly been quite good, in my opinion, maybe one of the better defensive first basemen who I've covered. But I mean, Casey, I mean, Casey's a guy who, you know, I watched him, you know, I made it out to the fall and preseason stuff a lot over the course of going into last season. And as a true freshman, I mean, he was someone who really, really impressed me. Um, it's actually interesting that, you know, it was one of the first times I saw him in person was a fall scrimmage in which, you know, he hit a, you know, slow roller that got through the infield and he hustled out double out of it. And he came up actually injured on that play, hurt his shoulder. And at the time I'm sitting there looking, I was like, dang, that, that didn't look that great. I mean, it was kind of, you know, pause and practice and things like that. A few weeks later, he's back in there, you know, finishing up the fall comes back, you know, awesome in the preseason last year. I mean, wins you know opening day job there in, in the outfield um then a couple of weeks later he's just gone out of the mix turns out he had sh shoulder surgery on that same shoulder that he hurt in september and he'd been playing through it for you know five six months um but comes back from that and you know he's been really great you know moving to the outfield permanently um he's been good out there i think the real thing that really sticks out with him 
you know, as a pure lefty hitter, he's he's been great against both sides of the uh, of the plate at both arms. He's hitting 320, 439, 432 against righties. He's actually even been better against lefties, left on left. 381, highest average on the team against left-hand pitching. Uh, 469 OBP, 505 slugging. So, I mean, he's been super impressive, a real tone setter there up top. And I think, you know, has really been a, a big emergence for this team, um, like you mentioned, with that on-base streak as well. And, I mean, the Vanderbreak, I mean <laughs> – just a crazy story. I mean, I think we've talked about the whole thing there a lot, you know, coming from the Juco, the wood bat, you know, only having one home run in his time there. And you're really just kind of dialing into that power there this year. I mean, you know, coach Forbes, I mean, he's talked about a lot. I mean, nobody foresaw this coming. I, I don't think Jackson, I mean, you know, he's talked about a little bit, maybe not so bluntly, but you know, the fact that, you know, he's had the year he's had offensively, I think is a big surprise to everybody. He's been great there in the field as well. Uh, him and Colby really holding things down up the middle. Uh, that play that he made there on Tuesday night, another Sports Center top ten team play for this team, I and mean, that was unbelievable. I was standing there down the third base line when he got it, and you could hear, you know, even up there around the concourse, you could just hear it, just the nice little pop in his glove, like it was perfect. Like you couldn't draw it up better. Um, he's been he's been super impressive, and I think you have to be really excited about what he's done and. You know, the thing about him, though, is, you know, conversation becomes a little bit is, uh, is he going to be around here next year? Is he going to get a chance to get drafted this summer now at this point? Um, I mean, Stokely, the same thing. I mean, you know, I think you would probably expect he would have been drafted anyway coming into this year as a junior, but it's an interesting conversation for sure. It is. And Forbes talks about it. And anybody that follows baseball, college baseball specifically, you're battling other teams, but you're also battling the M MLB when you're trying to put together a roster. So Carolina will be doing that. The Tar Heels uh, off until Gardner Webb on Tuesday in Boshummer Stadium. And then NC State comes to town for a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Mother's Day weekend um, affair. And then two Coastal and two Clemson to close the regular season. Got some work to do, um, but 500 or better, I think we agree, get some in. Um, they would certainly like to work themselves up a little higher than that. But, wow, a Columbia Regional or a Conway Regional with Carolina or South Carolina or Carolina and Coastal Carolina and one of the other in-state schools would be on fire either way. Let me – last question, serious question. Is, is there any material difference between a two and three seed, in your opinion, in the NCAA tournament? I wouldn't say super significantly. I mean, I, I, a lot of those teams do have similar resumes there if you look at it pretty closely. Um, but, you know, if you are looking at some of the lower three seeds, I mean, certainly I mean, those are the teams that are most, you know, on the bubble. Um, you know, the four, you, know, you have your four seeds are mostly made up by some of the you know, smaller conference, you know, who win their conference tournament and whatever, um, you know, similar NCAA men's basketball tournament in some ways. Um, but no, nah, I wouldn't say there's a major difference there personally. Yeah. Interesting take. And I agree. I, just get in, just get in the regional and see what happens. That's Greg Barnes. That's Pat James. Of course, North Carolina baseball expert here. I'm Tommy Ashley. It's been next level sponsored by Johnny t-shirt and Johnny t-shirt.com next week. Greg and I get part two with Anson Dorrance should be interesting. I plan to get more than two questions in, in an hour. Greg will do the same. Thanks, guys.
What's up, y'all? This is four-time NBA champ Andre Iguodala. Yo, and this is his best friend, the Ohio State legend, Evan Marcel Turner the first. Every Wednesday, we drop a new episode on our show, Point Four. We're talking basketball, business, and all the culture in between. From locker room stories to some basketball analysis from those who've been in the game. Now, it is a do-bad. Do average 29 and 11. God, what it take to be an all-star? A win. Subscribe to Point Forward, the podcast, so you don't miss a thing.